Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the latest Higher Education Happy Hour. I am Kevin Carey from New America, joined today by Libby Nelson from Vox.com and Andrew Kelly from the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, guys. How are you? Good to Hi, be Kevin. here. Uh, it's early afternoon. It's another non-alcoholic Higher Education Happy Hour. Boo. Uh, We're going to have to change the name of this podcast. We are. It's mostly a function of my like childcare arrangement and having to pick up my daughter from school, et cetera, et cetera, and not wanting to drink before getting into DC traffic. That'll end soon in the summer, so we can get back to a, a more civilized and normal, later in the afternoon, alcohol-related discussion. So our first topic of the day is a subject we haven't actually spent much, if any time, talking about so far, and it's uh, academic research and scholarship uh, in our nation's universities, prompted by the recent uh, scandal, I guess, controversy. Seems like a scandal. Scandal. Um, scandal. Involving... <laughs> A uh, prominent uh, study uh, done um, by a political science graduate student at UCLA named Michael LaCour, uh, co-authored with a very famous political scientist named Donald Green, am I right? Mm -hmm. Um, It got a lot of attention last year. It was written up because it purported to find some very dramatic effects on people's attitudes towards same-sex marriage based on a brief brief conversation um, uh, with a canvasser who self-identified as being gay or lesbian, I believe. Um, This was uh, really interesting and different than a lot of the existing literature, and so um, uh, brought a lot of attention to the person who, um, the graduate student who came up with the study, um, got a lot of mainstream media coverage, and has, uh, it seems, been uh, exposed as totally false and made up and fraudulent, et cetera, et cetera. Amazingly, I guess to me, the um, person in question is like still out there kind of insisting uh, that that no, it's all good in the face of an awful lot of evidence. So this is kind of, I think, a familiar kind of morality tale, uh, uh, at least to people who are sort of outside of things. It feels just very much like Stephen Glass or um, what's his name, Jonah Lehrer. You know, it's kind of someone who seems to have just like lied and lied and lied and lied and lied and gotten away with it until inevitably he didn't um, anymore. Uh, but I'm kind of interested about what this says about uh, academic research more broadly and publication and co-authorship. And uh, there was an interesting long piece in the Science of Us uh, section of of uh, New York magazine by Jesse Single, where he interviewed uh, the um, uh, person who sort of uh, exposed, I think his name was... Uh, Brookman. Brookman. A Berkeley poli-sci PhD. A Berkeley poli-sci PhD, as is Andrew Kelly. So, of course, we will be uh, uh, asking you to draw upon your expertise and experience in talking about this, um, who was the one who kind of figured out that there was something wrong and exposed it. And he talked a lot about how he was discouraged from doing this, that the advice that people kept giving him was, no, man, it's bad for your career. You don't want to be the guy who does this. Um, But he did it anyway. So um, did that seem, I guess, Andrew, I'd ask you to sort of start by reflecting a little bit from your own experience as a recent PhD graduate student. Um, Uh, does this happen a lot? Uh, is is uh, Brookman's take that this that there are disincentives for ferreting out fraud correct? What do you think about all this? Um, does this happen a lot? Hard to tell, uh, of course. The but the incentives uh, for people to publish um, research in top journals um, and to make a splash with that research, uh, the incentives are clear, right? right. You, well, and this guy got a job offer at Princeton, out of it. exactly. And I think he had eleven job talks, which is like very rare in the political science job market these days. So, um, um, what I'll say is uh, the following, which is. Um, it's pretty clear that um, there's 
the move toward quantitative social science um, has been um, very productive in many ways, right? But one of the things it has done is also set up a scenario where people can can play fast and loose with uh, their statistical analysis. You can kind of, you know, massage data till there's a finding. Um, there's a problem also of not wanting to publish null findings, right? Mm -hmm. So we only right. want to publish things that have effects, which is sort of a silly way to think about learning about the world, right? We actually want to know what doesn't work as well. Um, so those things like kind of in, in combination lead you toward this scenario where it, I don't have any... Um, sense that fabrication of data from the ground up is a rampant problem. Um, though it was a problem in social psychology. There was somebody who did this in social psychology. Um, I think what, what you're more, what, the bigger problem is just sort of like lack of transparency around exactly how people do things to come up with the conclusions that they come to. Um, and we can talk about some of the steps that political science has taken. Uh, and I'm not a big defender of political science, but um, has taken to sort of improve uh, on the transparency front. Um, but Yeah, I mean, this is something my colleague writes about a lot uh, with respect to medical research. And if anything, social science research appears to be even worse off in terms of the incentives to not do replication studies, um, to not want to publish results, to want to get something that is interesting and counterintuitive because the media loves the finding that is interesting and counterintuitive, but sometimes conventional wisdom is actually conventional wisdom for a reason. Um and it seems like, if anything, from what I've read about this, the academic incentives outside of medicine are even greater to not sort of, you know, you might not be encouraged in medical research to pursue a replication study, but it doesn't sound like you would be as outright like, no, you don't want to do this, um, as, as it was in this case. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in general, part of the trick in as a grad student who's going to go in the academic job market is that the people who will be interviewing you at campuses are the people whose work you'd be replicating, right? Oftentimes. Um, and so, so that comes with lots of hazards, right? Um, so it's, it's not, it's certainly the case that there are some incentives against doing that. I mean, I would say that I think um, the problem here is not just one rogue sort of grad student. I think it's, it's, a systemic problem. And I think you see the effects of the systemic problem across the board, which is his closest advisors, his co-author, um, nobody really bothered to check on any of this stuff, right? And now you have people coming out of the woodwork saying, yeah, well, you know, it was weird. I had this weird interaction with him a while ago, but I just dismissed it because it's, you know, he's an up-and-coming grad student, right? And he's got this job offer at Princeton. So um, there's just sort of a, an endemic kind of issue. And also, I think it's also just partly because... Uh, the world of academia is very atomized and you spend a lot of time working on your own, right? And so so you have to basically adhere to, it's like it's like if you're a golfer, right? You sort of have to adhere to this code of conduct, right? Where you're counting strokes on your own. And if you don't, right, nobody's really going to punish you um, unless you get found out, right? And and that's a problem. So Yeah, I mean, as, as somebody who is the least educated person at this table, um, my, my BA is starting to make me feel like a Horatio Elder story on panels or something. It's really like a degree inflation problem. Anyway, um, what struck me is how willing people were to put their names on things um, that they knew nothing about. I mean, and coming from a journalism perspective, I would never be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll co-author that paper with you. You don't have to show me your, your methodology or, or do anything that would have raised what – you know, I what clearly raised red flags for people once they started looking into it. Like that to me was shocking that people are willing to basically, you know, sign off on a major, major study without really much um, knowledge of what they're actually putting their name on. Well, and you can you can see the incentives even in the aftermath, right? Because mm -hmm. so the co-author was a very like the leader in the field, 
right, of this sort of, am oh, I yeah. right saying that? In terms Berkeley of- Berkeley poli-sci PhD as well. Okay. Don Green. Um, Berkeley's so, fingerprints are all over this <coughs> so in the, good and bad ways. So the thing, so uh, the evidence comes out and he immediately said, uh, asked for a retraction, unambiguously backs away from it, says, I never looked at the data. Um, I, I kind of suspect he'll he'll be okay, right? Yeah. You know, like, so he, on the front end, he gains enough status to start essentially claiming co-authorship or, I mean, or someone comes to him and says, hey, you want to put your name on this? And he says, sure. And even though he's not doing nearly as much work, he couldn't have, right? If he had actually done the work, then he would have known it was a fraud. Um, but now he can, Lacour's uh, uh, career is entirely ruined. He'll never uh, work a day in his life in academia, I'm assuming, based on this. Academia is not as forgiving as writing and journalism um, in some ways. Uh, 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 although maybe journalism is dying. Journalism is you know? pretty unforgiving yeah. of this kind of thing. Um, like... Really? I guess that's right. It depends. A little. I mean, there are journalists know. who didn't want Stephen Glass to pass the bar or right. be admitted well, to the bar in he California, wasn't. and he um, wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. Oddly enough, like Jonah Lehrer gets to keep writing, but has a book contract and is, yeah. is still doing stuff. I think um, those people. Yeah, I mean, I people think Jonah Lehrer mostly was a self plagiarist, which actually somewhere had a great piece on this. That was really just scraping the the, the surface of what he had actually he was, done. He but he somehow got put a, in a different category. He was a, a combination self plagiarist and fabulous, though, right? Didn't he kind of he made some of that? Yeah, stuff he definitely he definitely fabulized. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I assume, you know, he'll be, it's not like that dude's, it's not like Green's career has been ruined. I think it'll be, a, I assume it'll be a footnote and I'm like, yeah, mm, that's tough, man. Yeah, the reaction was basically, oh yeah, he didn't read it, it's he didn't fine. Read it. which it's, is- like, like it's not, like he's blameless because he never did the work in the first place. Well, yeah, so a couple things, right? I think on the one hand, on the one hand, um, uh, blameless is a little is a little bit too kind. I think there are a lot of people who are asking sure. serious questions about about what happened. Uh, the second thing is, I think I think your your narration of the of the time of the timeline is is what has won him whatever praise he's gotten for this whole affair, which right. is he reacted immediately and swiftly to to the to the allegations. Um, and I think that's partly because like so the backstory on Don Green is he's he's really. Uh, moved political science into this sort of experiment-based world where we're actually making inferences now about causal inferences about the effect of things on other things. So, you know, um, back in the day, right, there was a lot, there's a lot of observational work on why do people vote certain ways. We don't know the effect of canvassing. We don't know the effect of turn to get out the vote. Don Green has been um, uh, the forefather in many cases of, the, of this revolution in, in political science. And so, you know, and, and and in some sense, partnering up with a junior graduate student, a lot of professors see that as part of their service, right? Part of their service is to is to help people get ahead in their career. So, um, so I think he will come out. I think I think I think what I the way I interpret it is I think I think that I don't know him personally, um, but my sense is that he's probably being harder on himself than a lot of us are um, about this whole thing because I think I think he feels. He likely feels some pride of ownership over wh- the way that he's helped move the field forward right. in this direction, and I think the fact that people are going to maybe discount some of that now because of this, I think, would be really um, would sort of like really nod him. Would be my guess. But, you know, as an outsider, it's interesting to kind of this sort of dramatizes the intensely hierarchical nature of scholarship. Like in, like these phrases like senior scholar and junior scholar and at this point in your career and this very treacherous kind of upward upward tournament style competition slash upward path to from place to place to place to place, it's very it's almost the polar opposite of the world of 
just kind of writing and journalism, and in fact, more so, I mean, to a fault, perhaps. And so one, I mean, the, 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 the absolute opposite of that is the way that things work in Washington, D.C., where any idiot can just claim to be, uh, uh, start a think tank. We're and proof. Ca- and ca- exactly <laughs> right. <clears throat> and, and call themselves an expert or, you know, start a website and call themselves a journalist and, and put stuff on, on, on the online. And often I think, I am the problem, Kevin. Um, the, uh, well, or so am I, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I, uh, I have a master's degree in public administration, so I don't think I'm any more credentialed than you are, Libby, to be having these discussions. Um, I'm just older and have been talking about stuff for longer. Um, but, but you know, I'm also someone who, you know, like made a transition from uh, uh, just policy work to sort of policy work and journalistic kind of work, and you don't need any credentials to do that at all. Um, and so it has its pluses and minuses. I mean, sometimes the media is too credulous when it comes to, you know, calling people a scholar or a researcher or calling stuff research or report. On the other hand, you don't have all of the, I mean, people who are really good can move fast and their work, I think, is judged on its merits. I mean, if, if you can write a, an Atlantic caliber article when you're 25, nobody cares what your credentials are. And you stand basically just as tall as the person who's been doing it for 35 or 40 years. Um, and, and I guess I think that's a good thing in a way. I don't, I mean, you, you see the pluses and minuses. Yeah. 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 I would, I would just say that you're right. It's a different world, a different professional community. And, um, and the, you know, the, so when you're going out on the job market, right, the question is what kind of letters can you get from your advisors and can you get letters from advisors who people will recognize? Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, that's different, right? Than 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 you know. Oh, somebody wrote some obscure person wrote this amazing piece for New York Times Magazine, right, or whatever. But but at the same time, there are there are lots of examples of people who have written spectacular uh, articles that have really advanced the field that are not at the top graduate programs, right? And they're not, and they're not, and they're writing great. They write a great book that's not, and they're not at the top graduate programs. They usually wind up at the top graduate programs after that right. teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think there's, the, I, I will say this. I mean, 90% of the people that I came across in my PhD program who were sort of at the top of their field, young fac- young academics in political science, were brilliant people. And they were really creative. And that's actually what people, I think, get lost. They think about this as sort of this rote kind of march up the ladder, which is sometimes the case in the natural sciences because you're sort of just like building on what your advisor did in many cases. Political science has these people that just go out and they, they take on these big, huge questions and they and they tackle them in, in sophisticated ways. And I mean, you know, uh, I, I just think it's, it's more of a meritocracy. It's, it's less it's less pedigree obsessed, I think, beyond just having the credential of a PhD, right. which is, of course, a base a baseline that is that is credential obsessed. But I think it's more of a meritocracy than 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 some of this lets on. But. Yeah, I think the amount of attention this gets to sort of circle it back to the media comparison. One thing that this has really brought home for me is how much interest academic research is generating in the media that it oh, used yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Um, like this study, I remembered the study because right. we wrote about it. But everybody else, you know, everybody wrote about it. It was it was huge. Um, and I don't know if that's part of the shift toward quantitative and journalists really like uh, being able to, you know, write about something that's like that seems more objective because numbers can appear more objective, although I think that's certainly a, a point of dispute sure. um, than they are. Or if it's that the rise of the blogosphere and, and sites like us, but also a lot of other people are just more interested in academic work. And it's had a ripple. I mean, I just wonder if like 15, 20 years ago, this would have made a huge wave in the political science world and nobody else would have even heard about it. I, I think there's a, obviously a very large public appetite for social science research uh, that speaks to 
like broad issues and a lot of publications have become very good. And I actually think the way that news migrates through social media now, like, mm-hmm. you know, study shows yep. that, in, you know, counterintuitive finding that <laughs> says something about you, a lot of people will want to read that. And, mm-hmm. and if it's a combination of academic study and name brand university, it is seen as uh, completely uh, objective and no need to check further, right? It must be right. Yep. UCLA political scientist says, I, I don't need it to fact check I don't yeah. need to fact check that, right? That is right. the fact check. Right, right. And so just, just a couple quick points to finish up the topic, I think. Um, number one, um, academia is in many ways the kingdom of schadenfreude, right? So it's also the case that people are I think people are taking some sort of macabre, you know, pleasure in this, honestly, seeing somebody disintegrate like that. Yeah. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is, it was interesting, it was really telling to hear the the LGBT LA community organizer, uh, his response to this, which I thought was really um, potentially discouraging, which was, we spent all this time setting up a control group that we went to and talked about to about recycling rather than than gay marriage to set up a control group, right? Um, we wasted all that time, right? Because th- we should have been talking to them about gay marriage because that would have advanced our ends. Right. So what I worry about is that this is going to actually wind up leading people who are actually implementing some of the things that we could learn something from on the ground to be less likely to partner with researchers. I mean, yeah, I didn't even think uh, of that. He totally wasted all of the canvassers' time yeah, as well. Right. Yeah, right. And, and this is actually a real concern with people. When you ask them to do a study, they say, but, what, but you, what you're asking is for us to, to withhold the treatment from some people Right. Yeah. In order for you to study it. Right. And 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 which some advocacy groups are rightfully like, why would we do that? Right? Well, I mean, so, this this comes up in education all the time. I mean, you and I heard a presentation last week where it was there was a randomized control trial, and it was in you know the control group was people who didn't get something that was turned out to be really good. Yeah. And and everyone I think felt kind of bad about that. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. Was, I mean, those were real kids who needed that and didn't get it in the name of knowledge. And I think that's. But we deal with those in all kinds of places. Um, in different fields beyond education and, and political science. Um, all right, moving on to our uh, second uh, somewhat related topic um, around uh, academic research. And uh, in the state of Wisconsin, which has been uh, very much in the news for quite a while now, I suppose, in different ways due to the um, conflict between Governor Scott Walker and uh, uh, many in higher education in terms of budgeting and priorities and state law and um, the nature of what the state's kind of commitment to higher education. Uh, The latest version of that uh, has come up over the last uh, week or so where I guess a committee in the Wisconsin legislature has been um, uh, proposing language that would uh, remove some of the legal mandates around tenure and shared governance. Wisconsin, I think I'm right in saying, has among the stronger sort of legal foundations for those things. It's it's mandated in Wisconsin in ways that perhaps it isn't in other states. Um, so as I understand it, it would still leave it up to the universities to decide their approach to tenure and shared governance, but it wouldn't be as legally required. Um, many faculty members, uh, uh, particularly at the flagship university in Madison, um, have protested this. It's very much, I think, um, contextualized by the larger fight between Governor Scott Walker and organized labor in Wisconsin. Um, is this the latest assault on tenure? Um, I mean, I think it's natural for um tenure track professors and tenured professors uh, to feel as though this is a um, the latest salvo um, in 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 this this 
ideological fight. Um, but but I will say this. I mean, I, and I think part of the reason it's natural is because, in fact, we they've been doing away with tenure right, in a de facto way by not hiring tenure-track professors and not giving out tenure as much anymore across the country, right? That's the trend we've seen. So um, so it's natural for people to feel some, somewhat like an endangered species in some sense and then to say, gosh, the legal protections around this are, are going to, you know, if you, do, if you remove the legal protections, then people will do will do even, uh, you know, will hire even fewer tenure-track professors. I mean, I, the, but, the, but the thing is, like, you know, it's a finance committee vote. Um, it hasn't passed the as legislation yet. Um, the second thing is, as you point out, it sort of devolves decision-making power about this to the boards of trustees is my impression. Um, and the board of trustees, at least I think at, at Madison or for the whole system, I can't remember which, but basically came out and said, no, we're, we're, we support tenure and, and we're, you know, we're sort of not, we're not going to just roll it back because of this change if this change were to become law. So I think I get, I get the hysterics around it, but I, but I think we're also, f- f- we're a few paces away from the wholesale ripping, tearing down of tenure. Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about this is I do wonder how long these legal battles over tenure or legislative battles over tenure will even continue to feel relevant for most of higher education Um, when this is already, you know, tenure is on the verge of basically even among faculty becoming a minority issue. Um, Maybe not in the terms that, you know, they would like to have it eventually. And I don't know what the breakdown is. I haven't seen a great study on that. There probably is one. Um, of adjuncts who, you know, hope to aspire to tenure versus adjuncts and contingent faculty who believe that whether or not they want it, it is it is out of reach for them. Um, but I do wonder if in sort of an emotional cultural battlefield, this is kind of not a rear guard action, but like kind of kind of a rear guard action. But it, a loud one, right? <laughs> a right. very loud one yeah. because because it's because it's symptomatic of the change in that profession, right? That's been undergoing that's been, that has been it has been undergoing for gosh twenty five or thirty years. And right? it, yeah, I wonder about that in the sense that I mean, my like broad sense of what ha- what's happened to tenure since the seventies is that we had an, a substantial marginal increase in the college going population and did not have a commensurate increase in the size of the tenure professoriate. But there, I mean, there are more tenure professors in America today than there were in the 1970s. It's just relative to the number of professors, it's gotten a lot smaller. Most of that increase in the college-going population has been on the vocational side of things, broadly defined. And so we have, I mean, this is the same thing when we talk about the, like, quote, hollowing out of the humanities. It's just everything else is getting bigger around the humanities, and they're staying about the same or maybe shrinking in some disciplines relative to others. So, um, and then in some cases, I guess, we've sort of the tenure lines have been withering um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 like one question is who should care other than people in the professoriate? I, I was in a meeting the other day where so we were talking about all kinds of public policy issues, technology, graduation rates, the stuff that I think is interesting. And someone said, well, wh- you know, what do you think about, you know, the PhD production, yada, 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 because that's the most messed up thing of all. And I said, I don't care. Basically, it just doesn't, I mean, it all just sort of seems like a vehicle for labor exploitation inside the academic guild. And it's kind of up, up to y'all to figure it out or not. I mean, it, 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 it does resonate sort of with the discussion we were having a few minutes ago about this very hierarchical system where these real power imbalances between the haves and the have-nots. And I guess if it's really a meritocracy, that's justifiable in a number of ways. Um, I mean, in Wisconsin, I do think... I will say this, I think 
anyone in the Wisconsin university system is well within their rights to assume bad faith when it comes to labor issues, given the governance that's there right now. I mean, I just think that the, the governor has, I think Governor Walker has been, has so kind of publicly and resolutely positioned himself as a foe of labor that when it comes to labor issues, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume. So Andrew is rolling his eyes at me right now. Um, why would you assume anything? Like, I think, like, often I find these sort of assault on tenure to be a little bit, as you said, histrionic. There, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that's what it is. Well, sure. I, we we should we can talk about public sector unionism probably some other time. I, they're they're clearly related. I don't I don't. Um, so limiting the scope of collective bargaining, what you can bargain over, I think is a very different question than than outlawing unions, right? Um, um, so you know, I, I I but but I but I understand, right? I mean, th- this has been like you know, this has been a simmering fight. For, for folks. Um, I mean, I, w- I will say one of the things that, that I think is interesting that that is that is coming out as people comment on this is that the faculty with who the, the faculty are implicating not just the legislators, but administrators. They're saying they're saying what this is going to do is free up administrators to do what they want to do anyway, sure. right? which is do away with tenure, get rid of us, fire us, and so on. And so what the interesting thing for me is that, that, that I've always thought that there's this interesting opportunity for alliance <laughs> between like reformers and faculty vis-a-vis the burgeoning massive increase in, in administration, right? Because we can all agree that sort of like, a, you know, in some ways, like the least productive resource on a college campus, right? Teaching, you have teaching resources and you have uh, administrative resources. And so, but but I think, you know, I'm afraid that this is kind of like um, going to fray that, fray that potential um, um, coalition uh, to some extent, because I think, I think there's, I think there's a lot of, there's too much suspicion um, uh, on all sides. But. You think now there's too much, there wasn't, there wasn't before? No, I mean, I just remember, I remember sort of like, um, you know, Ben Ginsburg coming and talking about his book about the fall of faculty, right? Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and, I, yeah. and I just, I just had, ne- it had never quite occurred to me in as crystallized a, uh, a way that actually the people who are complaining about administrative bloat, who are often conservatives, mm-hmm. right? And the faculty who are often liberals actually have a lot in common on that issue, right? And so, but this is one of those cases where that's like, Right, going to actually separate the two groups in a way that, you know, for for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, certainly when I think about when I get questions about Walker in Wisconsin, it's always in sort of a national context, and this is such a more interesting campaign on higher ed already than 2012 was. Um, 2012 yeah. era me is very jealous of of this because right. when I was trying to write like a feature on Santorum's views on higher ed, this would have been really helpful. Snobbish, um, snobbish. <laughs> yeah. But I get really stuck. I do get stuck on Walker, and I sort of say, well, like. His having a college, not having a college degree is not the issue. The real issue he has with higher ed is this, like, endless battle that he has been in with them in Wisconsin. But I really never know what to say about what, if anything, that means in the national context. Yeah, I mean— <laughs> So I, I, tell, me what, right. tell me what to say next time somebody asks no, me No, I, I would just say that part of what I've said, you know, what I've sort of—when I talk to, to people about, like, how, you know, potential ways to talk about higher ed as an issue— um, is that I, th- I think I think like people on the right have wasted uh, too much time um, on the sort of fights over progressive campus norms and lefty faculty and mm-hmm. and I just I just think it comes across honestly as often anti-intellectual, um, which some people in the country like anti-intellectual thinking because they they think 
that's more speaking their language. But I just think in general, it's not much of a, it's not really like a crowd pleasing issue so much as, so much as talking about an agenda that would say, we want to create more educational opportunity for you, so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I just think, I think that's sort of like a global way to think about like a lot of this fighting over like faculty teaching loads. I see why there's interest in that, right? We want to make the system as productive as it, as it can be. Um, but I, I think, I think it, it, people often fall into the trap of, um, you know, coming across anti-intellectual. The last thing I'd say is I did not understand the whole fight over the Wisconsin idea and the sort of deleting of it and all this that happened, like when was that in the fall, I guess? Where like you can understand a, why they did it or? I, I don't, I don't understand like the logic. I don't under, like, I guess it's, it just struck me as like very, like, like, I, I mean, I guess I understand why they did it, but it seemed like ma- massively counterproductive. You, you don't understand why they tried to delete the Wisconsin idea and then pretended that that was a mistake. Yeah. I, it's yeah. Strategically, it I don't understand really why, okay. I don't understand yeah. why you would do it. Yeah. 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 yeah I just like, it's just right. like, what, why? Right, <laughs> but no, I mean, but I yeah, don't was, make the rules. It so. seemed like a miscalculation. Yeah, um, yeah, I would say so. I, it was so. It, there was a little bit of an interesting counterpoint um, embedded in the uh, Bernie Sanders college plan that came out last week, I guess. Where his so the big thing was Bernie Sanders uh, uh, says every, college should be free for everyone. But in addition, if you want to get in on the the massive new free college subsidies paid for by Wall Street, you have to increase your your your. Uh, uh, percent of tenured faculty back up to 75%, I guess, and give them better offices. Like the word Wait, office. I, I miss the office. Yes, the word I office. I read this bill and, and, and I miss the office. The word office is even in the bill. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's sort of, so the man in Congress who looks most like a rumpled college professor is actually also most representing the the interests of rumpled college professors. Um, well, that's so, a, it does, so it does yeah. kind of make the tenure issue that much more ideological in a way, right? If you're like kind of so left as to not be serious presidential candidate, is wants more tenure and your and well, I think Scott Walker is very much a serious presidential candidate, but also I think purposely defining himself rightward um, is making tenure um, an issue. It's out there. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I've been surprised by just anecdotally is the amount of success adjuncts and uh, contingent faculty have had rallying people to their concerns who have very little, who have really no interaction with yeah. the college system other than having gone. Um, it's, it's just been, I don't think it's like on the national radar certainly as an issue, but in the sort of liberal thinking world, even among people who are not super degreed themselves or who had not considered going into academia, I'm surprised by how much interest and like recognition of this as an issue there is. Whereas on the policy beat, like it kind of didn't come up. Like I, I, for you know, three years basically thought adjuncts were an issue for the people who covered faculty and they were not something that I needed to know very much about. I mean, yeah, so we can talk about adjunct wages and and the fact that they have to be itinerant and so on and so forth. But but I, I often I wonder like why 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 is there no massive outpouring of sympathy and support for people that went to law school and now can't get a job in the legal field? It's the same problem. They chose to invest in something for which there wasn't much of a market, and now and now they're now they're paying the cost of doing that, which is which is what you, what happens when you go to get. I mean, I got a PhD, right? Like. I'm working in this sector in part because I looked at the job market and said, gosh, that's really bleak, right? Um, and so, so you know, and also because of per- personal preference. But, like, so th- this is what I, I just don't, I don't get it. I, I don't seem, it, it just doesn't resonate with me as much. Well, it's, I mean, it's just, it's a difference in, in cultural 
filter, right? So uh, scholars are seen as as net contributors and uh, positive figures in society, whereas lawyers are seen as the opposite of that. So the idea, so if you spend too much money to be a dirtbag lawyer, you know, too bad, buddy. Whereas if you kind of mistakenly tried to live the life of the mind and were victimized by a, uh, you know, unexpectedly victimized by an exploitative system that's really the fault of the politicians who, you know, then you're a victim and we should feel bad for you. It's the fault of the institution that enrolled you in a PhD program knowing that there were no jobs. Sure. Again, back to what I said about- <laughs> Four-profit college about, did this and we pilloried them sure. for years, right? I mean, back to what I said about intra-guild Labor exploitation seems like uh, uh, so, but I think I mean I think Libby's right, and I think but it, they really do seem like more. I'm um, getting you know I'm qualified for food stamps. I'm I'm teaching. Teachers are very sympathetic figures, and these are these are all teachers. So they're not these are people who they're what they're doing with their lives is is only teaching, and they're teaching six classes for. It says making, something good about how much respect yeah. we have for having a PhD. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's says something good about society that that, that I don't feel that, much of that. That echoes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, the I last think I knew you had a PhD until very recently. Yeah, well, there you go. You should talk about it more. Um, yeah, you should wear like a class ring or something. <laughs> um, the last thing I would say, just quickly, is a plug. Is number one, I do think that there's some research. It's been a while since I looked at it on full time faculty versus part time, and that's. Students actually do better with full-time faculty. There's a lot going on there. I know, I know, I know. Whoa. But but this, this is just a plug yeah. to like let's study it more. Right? Oh, absolutely. Let, let's let's figure out like what is actually happening there, and and you know, um, and are you know are there things that we can learn about teaching and learning that we don't know now, but we just assume about who's better at it and who's not as. Good. I mean, my guess is like every uh, educator credential that exists you would find, just like in K-12, if you were to come up with the sort of perfect measure of effectiveness, you would find two big normal distributions that overlap, 90% uh, overlap, and will get obsessed on the 10% difference. Mm. You know, like you'll find this statistically significant effect of having a PhD and ignore the, like the huge time and money cost mm. of both acquiring one and requiring one. Um, but there's no, I don't think the, uh, the research is not that good. I no, mean, I think we, I think we need and to it mostly has it. to do with like interpersonal stuff, you know, like st stuff that's almost definitional. If you if you're you're more likely to have regular ongoing interactions with a tenured professor than an adjunct professor because duh, they're there. They're, they're yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our final topic of the day, getting back to what did you call it? The crazy. PC something crazy that we should be less obsessed with. We'll obsess on that a little bit. So um, over the last week, in the uh, something we've talked a lot about on the podcast, even though I don't think we were planning on it, which is Title IX um, and its ongoing implementation, there has been a debate out of, is it University of Illinois? Am I right? Northwestern. Kevin. Northwestern. Is it, oh, it's Northwestern. All right, we're going to go right to Libby. <laughs> <laughs> um, for her we're gonna, BA. We're going to go right to Libby for this one. BS, um, actually. Sorry, it's BS. Even worse. A, uh, a feminist professor at uh, uh, Northwestern University um, wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education um, uh, uh, basically bemoaning uh, the state of things on campus right now. I think it was meant to be a provocative article. The context was to... Uh, graduate students had filed a Title IX complaint against a faculty member alleging sexual misconduct. No. Okay. okay Libby, can, I, can I take this? I, take I, I wrote it, take about it away, Um So basically, the, the essay she wrote was uh, mostly in defense, started out as in defense of student-professor relationships, expanded to 
everything that is wrong with the infantilized college student today. Right. The backdrop, which she mentioned briefly, but sort of ended up being the legal basis for what happened next, um, was this this case at Northwestern where an undergrad had, according to her, been gotten drunk, taken home with, and groped by a philosophy professor. According to him, uh, she took most of the initiative, um, sued Northwestern, sued the professor, filed a Title IX complaint. Somewhere in there, it was discovered that a graduate student had also filed a Title IX complaint against the same professor. She wrote about this in like six to eight paragraphs. It was like 500 words of the 5,000-word piece. Um, But then two additional, possibly the same, we don't know, graduate students at Northwestern filed a Title IX complaint against her about the essay for having written about the specific case at Northwestern, um, which is the one thing I think tends to get – Somewhat misunderstood in there. It was not, I disliked the entire essay, although they probably did. I actually didn't like the essay that much, um, though I did not feel the need to file any legal <laughs> complaints complaint. about it. Um, but it was actually the the way that she referred and some fairly minor errors that she made. Oh, and uh, a tweet. And a tweet that she sent regarding the situation that had happened at her own university. And if it had, if she had been a University of Illinois professor, I actually there would have been no legal basis. Um, it because was it, because it was about the environment at her own university. Oh right. So um, so that's side note. Proving Twitter makes everything a little worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> raises never blood tweet. Pre- raises blood pressure <laughs> and has no tweet. positive. Uh, no positive. Benefits. So it was a Title IX complaint filed about another. It was filed. Yeah. The the Title IX complaint argued that the essay was retaliation against the students who had filed right. the complaint. By so she then wrote another long essay about her experience of the adjudication of this Title IX complaint against her. Um, also in the Chronicle of Higher Education. It's interesting reading. Um, and eventually she was just recently, a couple of days ago, they found nothing of it. And so she's been Yeah, she was cleared actually the day the essay ran, yeah. which is, which is um, interesting. Good timing, I guess. Yeah. Um, or terrible so timing. It does feel like, so it, Libby and I were talking about this a little bit uh, before we started. Uh, in my own mind, uh, there, I have this sort of ongoing question. The, people keep saying, wow, things have gotten really bad again. So I went to college from the late 1980s to the to the mid 1990s, which was the previous height of political correctness. So I very much kind of remember that as sort of a thing, and and it was a big part of the culture, the whole like Antioch College thing that happened, and all of that. And then and then it sort of went away for a while, and it seems at least in the dialogue to be kind of coming back. And so this, and I'm skeptical. I'm always inherently skeptical of any claim that like things are different in terms of how people are because people sort of seem the same to me. But it does seem like it's either things are different or we're getting a lot of new stories on the same uh, – along the same lines. There was a piece I guess in Vox that was published by a college professor saying, oh my god, I'm terrified of my students because – there's this new sort of uh, attitude of liberal intolerance where if you look sideways at someone, they're going to file a Title IX complaint against you on kind of insanely uh, manufactured grounds. And it seems like, at least in this case, that is kind of maybe what happened. It sounds like, right, it sounds like the old sort of you know, what you'd read about living behind the Iron Curtain, right? Where like your neighbors could bring any kind of charges against you that they wanted and get a hearing in some kind of kangaroo court, right? And, you know, you'd be like, how do you plead, right? It's like McCarthyism, but like, you know, uh, even worse. Um, I mean, I, I think this is I think this is naturally going to run its course. I think it's it's like people are realizing how excessive um, uh, this has this has become. Right, the freedoms that people have to bring charges against people that are part of their community. Um, it's been people have you know they've taken it to, to excess. I mean, to your point, Kevin, I think it's not 
I think it's not coincidental, right, that um, that uh, the education department, the Department of Education, which oversees Title IX and Title IX complaints, right, that there was a change in administration in that period where you saw less of this being in the news, right? So this you is said, Barack Obama's fault. No, no, not Barack Obama's mm-hmm. fault, but I, but I do think it's, but I think it's pretty clear to say that like the the um, the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, and and uh, Title IX um, folks at the department have been more aggressive. They, I mean, they, they made this, they, they, the president gave a speech about this, right? Or basically, you know, name this as a priority. as a Twitter exchange we, you and I had about the survey, about the one in five thing, right? right. right? The, the, so like to say that this has not been made a priority, I think is wrong. And I think what, lo and behold, that has an effect on institutions' response to their customers Making these complaints, whereas whereas some back in the day maybe they would have said back in the day maybe they would have said, uh, you know, are you sure about this? Right, like let's talk about what happened here and let's figure out a way to do this in a way that might not bring a complaint. Right, uh, maybe I'm wrong. But. I don't know. I think that that does apply to sexual sexual actual sexual assault reporting um, and investigations. I do think they obviously have pushed universities really hard on that, and pr- their response clearly is different. Um, it just, but it also seems like. My kind of standard response on whether colleges have gone crazy is that these are these trigger warning debates and kind of everything around them are still an incredibly small group of students, even on a very liberal campus. And I would say the one thing that this has shown is that really all it takes is two students to file a complaint against you if you can get it, you know, to somewhere where there is a legal process and it doesn't matter that it's a small group. But I do think that there has been this sort of collision of online activism sort of changes in the feminist movement that have coincided with Title IX enforcement but have not been caused by it. I mean, I think it's probably fairly safe to say that the Office for Civil Rights did not envision this kind of complaint being brought when no, they yeah. made this a priority. No, and I'm not right, and I'm not saying that at all. I'm thinking yeah. I'm I'm saying that there there's been that that colleges which are scared of their own shadow when it comes to the federal government turning off any of the spigots, right, of student aid are going are going to take every last complaint that a student lodges under this regulation or law much more seriously if they're if they're if people in the federal government have signaled that they're gonna that they're gonna take it more seriously no, that's, okay? that's all I'm saying yeah right? that's like true. and I like right whatever it's um, this is not an argument about whether that whether that's necessarily good or bad but that it has consequences and and I do think and I do think that that's that a lot of the rhetoric around Right, the things we talked about earlier, whether this is an epidemic and whether this is all that different from when you were in college, um, you know, I think all of that has been not particularly helpful or productive. I think it's been hysteric, hysterical in some sense. I mean, this thing that happened last week seemed it does seem to resonate with this larger question and conversation about you know, is this are we in this new era of liberal intolerance for speech? And this was you know, John Chait wrote that piece for New York a while ago that was I think. It was heavily criticized, I think justifiably so in some respects. Um, and he kind of followed up uh, uh, this week sort of talking about it saying, see, you know, like this is what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, you, you a, a feminist professor, not even a crazily conservative professor. Uh, um, I don't mean to be. <laughs> OK, I apologize for that. Uh, 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 not even a very conservative professor. And. Um, putting it's the words, fair because all the people yeah. you're t- we're talking about yeah. are crazy liberals. Right. So, so like every last one of them. Absolutely. Um, uh, says some, you know, provocative and kind of impolitic things uh, that one could argue with. 
uh, you know, very much so, but it becomes adjudicated. And so, you know, the, I mean, the clear message is you were in violation of the law for saying what you said. I mean, let's be honest, this is the exact response that she wanted to that essay. If John, if somebody had had yeah. filed a Title IX complaint against John Chait, his head would have exploded with joy. Like, this is, this is not to say that it wasn't True, or that sure, it wasn't extremely effective, but yeah. she knew that when she wrote it, she was going to get the exact reaction that she was going to get. And I that it she would sort of self-reinforce. I don't this. think she thought it was going to go this far, right. and that's sort of honestly why I think the second essay was a much more powerful statement of mm. what she was saying the first time around. Um, but if it had been limited to the sort of things that those original silencing of speech essays have been complaining about, like that was the that was the point of that essay was to get that reaction. And, I, and just to your point about the fact that it's often a small group of students, right? The 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 problem it's not this is the the, the problem with these kinds of procedural, um, you know. Uh, grounds for bringing complaints and so on, is that that minority of students can have a massive impact on how the whole campus functions, right? And that's what that's the problem. Why people are rightfully saying, "Wait, why do you go to college just to hear more of what you already agree with?" Right? I mean, that's really what this is starting to be about, right? It's just like, what's the function of a university? If the function of a university is to coddle your you intellectually, right, and and to tell you more of what you already believe, then then you know, gosh, we've moved like so far away from 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 what the way that I've I've seen it, and I think others. No, I mean, the, the, sort of the counter argument then to the it, the to this, and I think I think there is broad kind of mainstream consensus in the media that this is all a bunch of craziness and and any anything that smacks of um limiting speech is bad and and i think that is a pretty core value that a lot of people have it's a core value that i have um and i remember again having kind of watched it sort of from afar the first time around when i was in college so it had sort of two effects on me in my life at the time i think it kind of pushed me to the right because I was like, those these people are, what is going on, you know? And it was sort of, I was younger then, and it was kind of, you know, maybe being a little bit like, sort of distancing myself from what seemed like mentally from kind of the excesses of liberalism. Like, that's not me. I'm not. But then, you know, since then, I've actually become sort of more sympathetic to the idea that these were marginalized people, that these were people that didn't have a lot of power in larger society. This was the power that they were able to kind of take a hold of. And their, their their kind of ideological project was one that I actually agreed with, that they were um, ahead of their time in a way in advocating toward the way we think about issues like gender and race and certainly sexuality, um, which has changed enormously over those last 20 years. Um, and that made me kind of more sympathetic to, and, and, and sort of less sympathetic to the, you know, that's just a bunch of like politically correct bullshit as a as an epitaph and kind of an insult that no there 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 are some important ideas in there so I'm kind of trying to check myself again. Yeah, I mean and, the complicating factor here is that college students are terrible, which makes everything yeah, much right. more difficult. College and students and Twitter. There's always going terrible. to be a terrible, you know, there's always going to be a right. terrible, crazy minority of college yes. students that's never going to change. Right. Well, there's a, there's an inevitable college students, and they're on not the most effective. They're often you know this way they're college students. Yeah. They're yeah. not the most effective advocates for their viewpoints. They're right. In these cases, right. 20 and 21. And there's an inevitable pendulum sh sh shift almost always, right? I mean, your point, Kevin, about people people not having a sufficient political voice. I mean, this is what the country's been about, right, from its founding in many ways. Um, but the inevitable pendulum shift to the authoritarian impulse to say then, I didn't have voice for so long, so what I'd like to do is silence yours right. so that people can hear mine, right? That is anti-democratic, in my opinion, um, and for and rubs rubs up against 
uh, what what the country was founded on, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, I mean, in the end, it's going to be mostly about norms and not about laws. So, I mean, the, the, when we, filing the complaint, I think, rubs almost everyone the wrong way. The sort of the question of what the norms of speech are in terms of polite society and, you know, what you can say on the op-ed pages or, you know, what will get you hounded off of Twitter or this and that is more complicated and, and I think more mainstream. Um, all right. Well, that wraps up this. Can we please this talk week's... about something fun? I know we're running out of time. Uh, anything, you guys? Lightning? Well, that was supposed to be our light. Yeah. Bar. So my suggestion okay. before we started was just was quickly to just say that that I feel vindicated because in the first ever hap- hire at Happy Hour, we asked what people were ex- most excited about. I forget whether it was movies and TV, and yeah. I said um, I said Mad Max: Fury Road, and I feel vindicated because it has like the high one of the highest freshness ratings it on Rotten great. Tomatoes I've ever seen. Libby still hasn't seen it. We'll forgive her for that. <laughs> right. Um, Next but time. but wow, go see it, yeah. please. It's I great. think I said the Americans. Actually, yeah, I don't remember yeah. which one of us said the I Americans, said but the we Americans. were both also we were like super extremely vindicated. vindicated by our. Yeah. By I still our, haven't watched that. I need we're to. right about everything. I need to. You gotta you gotta jump in there. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. we can come around on Game of Thrones, I guess. So yeah, you, which I is what to, everyone talks about. I it's the one thing up. that unites us all: Game yeah. of Thrones. I need to catch up because I need I need to know how they're dealing with the hot mess. Of books four and five. So we, well, are we, are we all, are we, we're thing. all book readers here? I am not, but I've read a lot of things intended for book readers. Uh, okay. All right. right. All right. <laughs> but, but Andrew and I are actual authentic book readers. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, you Kindle, probably, Kindle readers because they were too heavy. Yeah, yeah. Said this week, if you're still going to read the books at this point, the, the show is a better version of the, of the uh, later I, books. The books are so. still, I don't know. I mean, the books are really good. Um, I wouldn't not recommend them. I think they're still I'm, worth I'm reading. I've been meaning to get to them. He needed an editor I for four right. and five. So, yeah. Big time. The descriptions of like various, uh, right. how do you even say that word, hauberks that people wear. I mean, like I don't even, every yeah. single outfit is described in minute detail. Right. And every meal also. Every meal. Every meal. Yep. I like, I like that a lot trope. of eating. That, so, is, that, is a, that is a fantasy trope I really enjoy. So the last episode, was, yeah. so are you caught up on the TV? No, I'm not. Okay. I'm so not. The, so, so the la- I'll just sort of speak in general terms. But the last episode was amazing because it's the first episode that just blows so far past the books that you're just experiencing it. Like anybody Fresh. would experience it. It's like, oh, oh, wait, what's, oh my God, this is happening right now? Okay, let's kind of get into it. So it's, it's. Uh, there, I think maybe I would say 10 to 15% of what's in the last episode is in the books and the rest of it is all new. Wow. Um, Might be the best thing that happened so, to the conclusion of this book, ser- book series. Maybe he'll adapt, right? I don't know, but I think, he's, I think he might go in the other direction. We'll see. I don't know. I mean. Um, it's like two alternate endings. Or something like that. But but he so he had to tell them how it was gonna end contractually, right? I mean he had mm. to when he signed I on think they, they had to tell him how it was going to end. Like that or was something. That was I mean, because it was sort of like, well, uh, you're sixty five years old and overweight, so what if you drop dead tomorrow and like we have this massive amounts of uh, investment in the show, you have to tell us the ending. So they know the ending. Um although I sort of feel like the ending is kind of I I feel like I know how it's preordained, yeah, yeah, in some yeah, ways at this yeah. point. Um, all right. Well, you read all five books. I was saying, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew needs to watch the show. TV. I'll, yeah. I'll read all the books. And, I'll, and we'll I'll watch Mad Max. It. We'll come back. Okay. Um, that concludes this higher ed happy hour on a happier note than the fraud and and cultural uh, infighting uh, that we talked about before. Um, once again, thanks to John Williams and Amanda Gaines here at New America for doing a fantastic job of producing. And thanks to all of you for listening. Um, you can subscribe to the Higher Ed Happy Hour on iTunes and many other fine podcast venues. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, 
please visit us at newamerica.org.